Okay, everyone, if, if everyone's okay with it, I would like to um, get started just a couple of minutes early because we got a lot of material to cover tonight. This is a big, big lesson here. So if you're okay with it, let's go ahead and just get started a couple of minutes early. Give us a couple of minutes of extra study time. Turn in your Bibles, please, uh, to Mark the 15th chapter. I do want you to know that in addition to Mark 15, if you want to place your Bible in um, a couple of, or a few other places that are parallel to what we're talking about, uh, I'll give you those scriptures. Mark 15, Matthew 27, Luke 23, John 19. So these are the gospel accounts of what we're talking about tonight. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. Uh, we are concluding what took place on the Friday of the last week of Christ. This is the study about the Lord's crucifixion. This is the study about the events surrounding the cross. This is lesson number 11 in your workbook. Lesson number 11 in your workbook. Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19, Matthew 27. Before we dive into it, I got several slides I'm going to show you, but before we do that, let's have a prayer, okay? Almighty God, we bow our heads with humility and thanksgiving. Uh, thank you, Father, for this opportunity to open up your word and study about the death and the burial of our Lord. We're so thankful, Father, uh, that you loved us so much that you gave us your son to die on a cross for our sins. Father, we pray that we approach this study with seriousness and reverence for the topic. We pray, Father, for those among us who are sick at this time, those who may even be, even be suffering from COVID or have loved ones suffering with COVID. I pray, Father, that your hand of blessing be upon all these folks. Uh, thank you, Father, for uh, the church family that meets here at Monte Vista. Thank you, Father, for the Bible class teachers, the young people we have here. I pray that you will be with us all tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look at a few slides here. i got several slides I want to show you, so just hang with me. All right, so we're looking at where we're at on our chart here. We're concluding Friday, okay? Friday of the last week of Jesus Christ. We've looked at his trials. We're going to look at the crucifixion. Uh, on Friday so far, we've seen, we've read about Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leaders. Early on Friday morning, the Sanhedrin brings Jesus before Pilate. Pilate's the Roman prefect of Judea. Pilate then sends him to Herod because Herod is in town for the Passover. Herod has jurisdiction over Galilee. Jesus is from Galilee, and then Herod doesn't find anything wrong with Jesus. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate, again, doesn't find anything wrong with Jesus. He has Jesus scourged. He hopes that will satisfy the crowds, but the crowds will not be satisfied unless Jesus is crucified. And so Jesus is handed over to be crucified. Uh, we learned about Pontius Pilate, key, key character in this part of the gospel narrative the Roman governor of Judea for 10 years, from 26 to 36 AD. He questioned Jesus and he found him to be innocent. To satisfy the Jewish crowd, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Uh, when Jesus is being crucified, he writes uh, an inscription and he put it on Jesus' cross. Does anybody remember what that inscription said? 
the king of the Jews. He called him the king of the Jews on the inscription. The Jews didn't like that. They said it needs to say he called himself king of the Jews. But Pilate said what I've written, I've written. So he kind of wanted to get the last say-so on this. So that, was, that really irritated them that the sign that was on Jesus' cross, the inscription referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders did not want to accept that. They did not even want that on his cross. Pilate also made an official inquiry into the deadness of Jesus. Now, that's very important. Pilate, in, in Mark 15, when you read 44 through 45, he wants to make sure Jesus is dead. He investigates it. He asks uh, one of the Roman guards, is he dead? The Romans were experts in making, pe making sure people died through the process of crucifixion. This is an important point because you have some critics of Christianity who will try to say that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. It's called the swoon theory. Have you ever heard the swoon theory? They say Jesus just kind of fainted on the cross. He really didn't die on the cross. Well, the gospel writers don't say anything about that. They make it very clear that Jesus died on the cross. Pilate investigated the matter. He's the Roman governor. The Romans were experts in killing people through this process. So Jesus did not just faint on the cross. He died on the cross, and Pilate made sure his body was not taken off of the cross until he was dead. So the swoon theory just doesn't work. Since he wasn't the Messiah they wanted, and this is an important point, some may wonder why did they kill Jesus? Why did the Jewish leaders want him dead? Well, the main reason why they wanted him out of the way was because he was a threat to their power, and even though he claimed to be the Messiah and proved to be the Messiah, their hearts were hardened against Jesus because he was not the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a Messiah that was going to come like King David, a Messiah who was going to come as a great military leader and lead the Jews to liberation from the Roman government. Well, Jesus didn't come as that kind of Messiah. He came as a poor carpenter from Nazareth, talking about not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. And they didn't want that. They didn't want to accept that. They charged him with the very thing they had been waiting for. They wanted someone who would be an insurrectionist. And they wound up charging him to Pilate for being an insurrectionist. Uh, that's the irony in it. That's exactly what the kind of Messiah they wanted. But Jesus did not come to be an insurrectionist. He came to establish the kingdom of God, which would be a spiritual kingdom. Jesus experienced ill treatment and humiliation by the hands of the Roman soldiers. The Jews took responsibility for killing Jesus. Do you remember that? They said, his blood be on us and our children. They said that. They took responsibility for this. And then another key part of the story is a man named Simon. We'll talk more about this. Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus was too weak to carry it himself. And so Jesus probably appears before Pilate at the Antonio Fortress. And he carries uh, or he bears his cross and Simon bears his cross, helps him bear his cross from here to Golgotha. This is typically said to be the site of Golgotha, which is right outside of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, if you're looking at it from this perspective, again, we're coming in to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives from our direction here. And Golgotha would be right outside the city this direction right here. 
right outside to the right uh, outside the city of, of Jerusalem. I think it's to the northeast of, of Jerusalem. Golgotha names means the skull. Today it is believed it is believed that the most likely salt of Golgotha rests under the church of the Holy Sepulcher. The site sits due west of the temple and right outside the city's walls in the first century. Jesus was crucified here, taken down and buried in a new tomb owned by Joseph in a garden nearby. When I was able to go to Jerusalem, we were able to visit the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Again, most of these holy sites, quote unquote holy sites, have a church built near or on top of them. And this is the site that is generally believed to be Golgotha, where the Catholics built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, we were able to go inside the church. This is pre, way pre-COVID, where you didn't have to worry about masks and social distancing. Uh, as you see, people, they go inside this church, and it's a very uh, sacred site uh, for many people who, who claim to be Christians. Uh, they go in here and they worship. They have all these uh, expensive uh, decorations and things. And, and people go in there and, and they go in there, you know, to worship, to praise. Uh, this is a holy site for believers because it is generally believed to be, uh, if not the exact area where Jesus was crucified, it's very close to it. One of the things our tour, our tour, guide, would, our tour guide will often tell us is even though this may not be the exact spot, you're very close to it. This is not like Jerusalem. It's not like the state of Arizona. Uh, it's not even like the state of Rhode Island. It is a very uh, small place, and if you're not in the exact area, you can probably go outside and look around. You're going to be close. You're very close to the site. There's no doubt about that. So what we're going to look at today is the crucifixion itself. We're going to look at the witnesses of the crucifixion, the final statements of Jesus on the cross, and the miracles that accompanied his death. Before being led away for crucifixion, the Bible says that Jesus' own garments were put back on him. Remember, they stripped him down first, and they put on him a robe, a purple robe to mock him. Well, then they, as before they lead him out for crucifixion, they take the robe off of him, and they put his own clothes back on him again. The soldiers placed the cross on Jesus' back, forcing him to carry it, but he was too weak to hold it. Simon, the, the Cyrene, a passerby, just somebody passing through the way, probably there for Passover, was forced to carry Jesus' cross. What an honor that would have been, but he would not have realized it at the time. Simon was the father, the Bible says, of Alexander and Rufus. Remember that? He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Since these names are given to help identify Simon, many believe that these men, Alexander and Rufus, were well known to the original readers. Maybe these men even became Christians later. A great multitude of, follow, a great multitude of people followed Jesus to Golgotha. Uh, many disciples followed Jesus to Golgotha. Many of them, in fact, most of them appear to be women, women disciples. They were weeping. They were wailing. They were crying over what was taking place, and Jesus told them not to cry. He said, don't cry about this because you're crying now, but there's going to come a time where there's really going to be something to cry about, and that is what? Destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The Jewish people are going to pay for this. 
That's the time when, when all of Israel should be weeping, not now. Two criminals were also led out with Jesus to be crucified. Crucifixion, I'm going to say some things about crucifixion, was a truly horrible way for a person to die. It involved a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. It was very miserable. It was a death so terrible that the Romans wouldn't even do it to their own citizens. They would not crucify their own citizens. That's just why Paul was not crucified. Uh, many believe that Paul got his head cut off, and that actually would have been a better way to die than crucifixion because that's quick and usually painless. Crucifixion is a drawn-out process, so the Romans would not crucify their own citizens. The death was reserved for the worst and most despised enemies of Rome. Usually, it is reserved for insurrectionists, people who rebelled against the Roman Empire, people that the empire wanted to make an example of. It was not a quick and painless death. After having nails driven in their hands and in their feet, the condemned person would be left to hang on the cross for several hours, and in some cases, they would be there for several days. They would leave them on the cross for several days to suffer. The victims would suffer from dehydrations and crushed tendons and massive blood loss, shock, exposure to the elements, dislocated joints, intense pain, several other torturous things, birds and, and, and insects biting on them, preying on them, feasting on open wounds. It was just a, a horrible, horrible way for a person to die. The Romans often placed a little pad at the criminal's feet so they could, so they could breathe. They did this not to give them any kind of comfort, but because they wanted to prolong their death. They didn't want them to die too quick. They wanted this to be a drawn-out process. And the condemned person usually, eventually, would die from suffocation when the body could no longer support itself on the cross. So it's a truly, truly horrible experience. So let's go to the questions now. I just wanted to give you a little background on that, okay? Let's go to the questions. Question one, let's talk about Golgotha. Golgotha. Okay, the name, Gol the name Golgotha, as we've already made reference to, it is an Aramaic term. Golgotha is an Aramaic term, and it means what? Place of the skull. It's the place of the skull. The Latin word for Golgotha is what? What is the Latin word? Calvary. Yes, Cal or Calvary. Same thing, absolutely. So absolutely right. So Golgotha is an Aramaic term that means the place of the skull. The Latin word, which means the same thing, is Calvary. This is why we say Jesus died at Calvary. Now, why is it called Golgotha? Well, there are two possible reasons why this place is called Golgotha. The first reason has to do with its association with executions, skulls, dead people. Some say it's called Golgotha because of its association with executions. A second reason why it is possibly called Golgotha is because some say that the hill, the original hill of Golgotha was shaped like a skull. It was shaped like a skull. In fact, this is uh, one of the key things that a lot of archaeologists use to try to find the original site. And that's why you have a couple of different places in Jerusalem where it is believed to be Golgotha. One is the place where I showed you, which is where the Holy uh, Church of the Holy Sepulcher is built upon. But there's another site, and uh, this other site actually, if you look on a, uh, on a, a map of it, the original, when, the, when it originally was found, it was said to be shaped like a skull. So those are a couple of possible reasons. 
One because of its association with executions, but another is because of the shape of the area. Some believe that it was shaped like a skull. Now the second question, let's talk about these two men who were crucified with Jesus. How does the Bible describe these two men? Somebody tell me. They're thieves. Some translations say robbers. Some even say they were criminals. So they're thieves. They're criminals. They're bad men. These are bad men. Maybe they were even involved in some kind of insurrection. The Bible makes it clear for sure that they were thieves. These were robbers. So these men are also being crucified with Jesus. Now, some kind of bonus things to think about here, bonus questions. Somebody again tell me, how long did Jesus hang on the cross according to the Bible? How long was he on the cross? About six hours. That's right. It seems like he's on the cross from the third hour of the day, which would have been what? About nine o'clock in the morning until until the what's the I think it says the third hour of the day. Then it says the sixth hour. Am I right about that? Yes, then you got the ninth hour. He comes down. So he looks like he's on there from nine in the morning to three in the evening. So that's what so he's on there for about six hours. That's really a short amount of time for someone to die through the process of crucifixion. Now, who all surrounded the cross? Let's talk about the people who are at the cross. Give me give me a give me a few people that you remember. And maybe you can even see some of them here. In Mark 15. If you've read Mark 15, give me some people who are at the cross. Give me one. All right, so we got his mother. Somebody said his mother. This was, that was prophesied. You remember that? There was a prophet that told Mary that her soul was going to be pierced. And that was a reference to her having to see her son die on the cross. So you got Jesus' mother. You got Mary Magdalene there. You got Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, you have, don't forget about Simon the Cyrene. He probably is there. He's helped Jesus make it that far. You got the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. In fact, when he is there, at some point, Jesus entrusts his mother to John. He says to Jesus, uh, Jesus says to his mother, behold, your son. And he says to John, behold, your mother. This is during a time where you didn't have Social Security benefits and these kind of provisions that are in place in our culture to help take care of, of widows and, and women who may not have children. Yes, and he took care of that duty. He entrusts John with his mother. What does that show you about the respect he had for John to entrust his mother to him? That's a big deal, wouldn't you agree? Jesus took care of his family, took care of his mother right before dying. That was something that was on his mind while on the cross. So you got Jesus' mother. You got Mary, the wife of Cleopas. You got Mary Magdalene. You got the disciple whom Jesus loved. You got Simon the Cyrene. You got the Jewish leaders there. You got the enemies of Jesus there. You got Roman soldiers there. There's a lot of people there at the cross. Now, question three. Let's look at some... Some things that have to do with the Psalms a little bit. Yes, yes, sir. Because it was on a throughway and the purpose was for an example, you got everyone that walked by those six hours per day. Bystanders. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So you could have had and, and I think that, hundreds well, of people who've seen it. That applies to the Roman soldiers that came up to them that we about here. 
Absolutely. Excellent point. Good point. Okay, question three. Some of the things that happened while Jesus was on the cross. One was the casting of lots for his garments. Is that found anywhere in the Old Testament? Psalm 22, 18. Psalm 22 is probably, of all the Psalms, the most messianic. Psalm 22 may make more references to things that happen to Jesus, the Messiah, particularly his crucifixion, than any other Psalm. Now, the Psalms are loaded with messianic prophecies. But Psalm 22 may have the most of all of them. In Psalm 22, 18, you have the prophecy about the, how Jesus' garments would be cast lots for, gambled over. This was common practice, actually, during this time. This was not something unique to Jesus. Romans did this constantly to people who were being crucified. In their minds, they're dying. They don't need their clothes. We can just divide them up. This was kind of a spoils thing for them. This was very common for the Romans to do this. Now, in every other case, their thinking of this would have been true. The dead person doesn't need their clothes, right? Only Jesus is not going to stay dead. He's going to need some clothes later, right? Because he's going to be raised. So this would have been true 99.999% of the time. Just not with Jesus. Question four. While Jesus is on the cross, he's hanging there with nails driven in his hands and his feet. He's suffering. But there's some talking going on from people while he's at on the cross. The religious leaders particularly are hurling abuses at him. They are mocking him. What are some of the things they're saying? He saved others. He can't save himself. He said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Let's see, can he come off the cross? Maybe he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah can save him. We find these verses in uh, references to this in Mark 15. Mark 15, 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him. So you've got the religious leaders just passing by, wagging their heads and saying, Hi, you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, members of the Sanhedrin, they also came along with the scribes. Then they were mocking him amongst themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, and they're being sarcastic here. Let this Christ, the king of Israel now, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. That's a reference to who? The, the thieves. The thieves were also insulting him. So you got a lot of people mocking Jesus while he dies on the cross. The religious leaders, even the thieves are doing it for a while. But that's eventually going to change, right? Not everybody was mocking Jesus. Eventually, one of the thieves seems to have been converted. He's converted. And in Luke 23, verse 42, he makes a request of Jesus. What is his request? Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And from that statement, do you think this man starts believing in Jesus? Oh, he starts believing in Jesus. Now, I'm, yes. And that's another great point. This man evidently was a Jew who was familiar with the prophecies of Scripture. He was familiar with 
how the Messiah was going to build a kingdom according to Daniel chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 2 and many other passages. Yes, absolutely. This man, for all we know, could have even been baptized by John the Baptist. But that's another story. But that's exactly right. This man was familiar with the teachings either of the prophets or of Jesus, or maybe both. And he's familiar with the kingdom, and by him making reference to the kingdom, that shows that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, because only the Messiah would come in the kingdom. So that's an important point. Yes? Remember, John's teaching and Jesus' teaching were exactly the same. The kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah, right. I agree with that. I think that's an excellent point. So let's break that down a little bit more. So we got both thieves insulting him. One of them has a change of heart at some point, not long before Jesus dies. This is in Luke 23, 39 through 42. He has a change of heart. He mentions the kingdom. He says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. So he believes this, this is not the end for Jesus. He believes that on the cross, dying with him. Now, I don't want to make this lesson a whole lesson. right. I'll do a sermon about that at some point, but I'm not going to make this lesson about what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. We're not going to do that tonight. Not going to do that tonight. That's a, that's a sermon. We'll do that later. I'll just say this for now. This is pre-Great Commission. This is pre-Mark 16, 16. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Lord. He has the right to save people whenever he wants, however he wants. And that's what he does here. He saves this man. He forgives this man. He says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a reference to the saved portion of the Hadean world. Remember, there you have Hades where all the dead go, but you have paradise, and then you have the part of Hades where the rich man is, according to Luke 16, right? Jesus went to Hades for three days. He went to Hades. And this thief who is humbling himself before Jesus is asking Jesus to remember him to forgive him even. And Jesus says, I'm going to save you right here and now. He could save people from the cross. He says, you will be with me in paradise today. They were both going to paradise together. That's Hades. And another great, uh, another great verse that shows us that Jesus did not go right to heaven when he died is found when Jesus talks to Mary Magdalene. He tells Mary Magdalene in John 20, don't cling to me because I have not yet ascended to my father. Well, if you haven't gone to your father, where have you been for the last three days? You've been in paradise, been in Hades, the saved part of Hades. So Jesus has the authority to save whoever he wants, however he wants. I'm going to give you um, some moments to make some comments in just a second. Let me just get through this real quick. Some other key things that happened. Now, these things, and somebody, Jonathan, you may have said it, Gary may have said it, but... You have the, the gospel writers break this up in three different time slots. So you have the third hour of the day, and then you got the sixth hour of the day. So Jesus goes up at the third hour at 9 o'clock in the morning. Then the sixth hour would be about lunchtime. That's noon. 
A lot of stuff starts happening on the sixth hour when Jesus is on the cross. Darkness falls over the whole land for three hours until the ninth hour. You see that in verse number, that's Mark 15, verse 33. You see verse 33? The sixth hour comes and you got darkness over the whole land. The sun is obscured. So God is at work. God is at work right now. An earthquake takes place. A severe earthquake takes place. In fact, this earthquake is so severe that what happened to something at the temple? The veil of the temple was ripped in two. Now, you probably have heard many lessons on that. Somebody tell me, what does that represent? Access. Yes, that separation is no longer there now. Remember, in the, in the temple, you have the holy place separated by the most holy place with a what? With the veil. The high priest goes into the most holy place once a year to offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The Ark of the Covenant is in the most holy place. The most holy place is said to have been the place where the presence of God was among his people. The veil represented how the, 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 the lack of access to the presence of God. But the veil of the temple was torn in two when Jesus dies on the cross. That represents the fact that now that, that denial of access that man had between him and God is gone now because Jesus has offered the ultimate sacrifice for sin. It's very symbolic. Wouldn't you agree? So top to bottom. Yes, yes, that's a good point. Torn from top to bottom. That's exactly right. Exactly, yes. The presence of God is no longer in the temple anymore. That's exactly right. No, that's absolute. In fact, when you look at how Paul puts this, that goes with what you're saying, and, and that'll take me somewhere done where I can go for about two hours. When Paul talks about the church, the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church is, refer, is referred to as the temple of God now. And the presence of God is in his temple today. It's in his church. It's with us right here and right now. We have complete access to God through the death of Jesus. Isn't that a blessing? There's no separation between us and God. We are his temple. And because of our high priest Jesus, who offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice, there's, there's full access between us and God to us to have a relationship with God. Now, something else I, I got to make mention of here is Jesus, during this time, also cries from the cross. He cries, Eli, Eli, Latha, Sabathan, and I. That is also found in the Old Testament. That's prophesied in the Old Testament that that would be said. Where is it found? Should be easy. The psalm that talks the most about Psalm 22, that's Psalm 22, verse 1. Now, there's a lot I could say about that. My time is limited. I would just say this, okay, and if you want to talk about it in private, I'll be more than happy to talk with you about it. I do not believe that the father ever was out of fellowship with his son. I do not believe that. I believe if you want to understand why Jesus said what he said in Psalm 22, you need to read that whole psalm. You need to go home and study that psalm. Don't just read one verse and call it a day. That psalm, in that psalm, if you go home and read it, you have some time tonight. 
That psalm is spoken by a man who in the beginning appears to be deserted. He appears to be forsaken. He appears to be even forsaken by God. But when you keep reading that psalm, the language completely changes. It changes from a man who appears to be forsaken to a man saying things like, when you go over to Psalm 22, uh, I was actually studying this the other day pretty deeply. Psalm 22:19, he says, Psalm 22:19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. God is coming to my assistance. God is coming to my aid. Verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from me. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. This is a victorious psalm. This is not a psalm about a man who's truly forsaken by God. It is a psalm about a man who appears to be forsaken by God. But in the end, God was with him the whole time and God vindicated him. The Jews knew this psalm. We struggle with it because so often we go to one verse and read it and call it a day. The Jews knew this psalm. And Jesus says this, quotes that, because he knew they knew it. He don't have time to preach a 30-minute sermon from the cross. All he's got to do is quote that one verse. And he knew they knew what it meant. He knew they would know that it appears now that he's forsaken, but that's not the whole ball game. Just like this man in Psalm 22 wasn't truly forsaken by God and he was vindicated in the end, that was, that's what happened with Jesus. He was not forsaken, even though it appeared that everybody had forsaken him, even God. That wasn't the case. So I would recommend, before making a judgment on what you think Jesus means when he says that, try going to read the whole psalm, read it in its context, and I think you'll see why Jesus said it and how the Jews would have took it. Now, some other things that happened, Jesus giving sour wine. Is that a fulfillment of prophecy? Which psalm? Well, that was not that one. This was a different, it's actually Psalm 69. <laughs> but that was a good guess. <laughs> That's a good guess. Okay, so real quick, let me just throw these things up here. Man, I knew I was going to have a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, there are seven statements of Jesus on the cross. You ever heard that before? Seven statements of Jesus on the cross. Maybe you've heard preachers preach seven sermons from these seven statements. Don, you may have that in your bag somewhere. Uh, Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for they do not, do not know what they're doing. Notice how Jesus, while dying on the cross, he prays for his enemies. Paul tells us to do the same thing in Romans 12. And Jesus tells us to do the same thing in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You pray for your enemies. Pray for people who despise you. Jesus didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. Luke 23, 43, we made reference to that. Today, I say to you, uh, you will be with me in paradise. He said that to the thief on the cross. John 19, we made reference to that. He says to Mary, behold your son, and that should not be caps there, I'm sorry. That's a reference to John, the apostle. And behold your mother, That's a, he's speaking there to John about Mary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quotation from Psalm 22, 1. I am thirsty. Jesus was thirsty on the cross. At first, they tried to give him sour wine. And he refused. But right before he died, he drank, he, he drank it. John 19, 28. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Luke 23, 46, it is finished. That is the plan of God, the plan that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It's finished. We finished it together. See, God didn't forsake Jesus. They were working in concert together the whole time, even though the religious enemies refused to accept that. Now, when did Jesus, like, which one of these was first and which one was last? It's hard to say because you're looking at different accounts. The point is, these are the things Jesus said right before he died. I commit my spirit into your hands. It is finished. Other observations real quick. A centurion was converted during this time. Y'all remember that? When he saw all these things happening, the earthquake and the darkness, he says this truly must have been the son of God. A Gentile's converted. The legs of the two criminals were broken. Jesus' legs were not broken. Now, why did they break the legs of the two criminals? We don't want them up there for the Sabbath. The Sabbath's the next day. The Jews don't want them up there for the Sabbath. So the breaking of the legs was designed to kill them quickly. They would have died quickly. They didn't break Jesus' legs. Why? He was already dead, and that's also a fulfillment of prophecy. That's another fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Jesus' side was also pierced. Remember, a Roman soldier stuck a spear in his side. Blood and water came out. That confirmed again that, he, that he's dead. He's dead on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy disciple, requested the body of Jesus. He wanted to bury the Lord. Pilate granted his request. Jesus' body was wrapped in linen and placed in a new tomb, and the tomb was located in a garden that is near Golgotha. Jesus dies at about 3 o'clock. About 3 o'clock. Joseph of Arimathea takes the body and he, and he buries it. And there are some women disciples who are watching to see where the Lord is going to be buried. Now, that's a lot. And forgive me if I didn't do it enough justice. It's such a big topic. But I, I hope it, uh, it strengthens you some tonight. Are there any final comments that we, that we want to make? Brother Gary, go ahead, sir. This man had no skin in the game. He was just somebody from the outside. He was probably a ranking secularist. He wasn't a Jewish leader or anyone like that. Right. He was someone who was just observing, and from his observation, he knew this, this guy had to be special. He's got to be the son of God. Now, I, and I'm glad that's there. We see that honest, honest hearts were converted on this occasion. Uh, anyone else? Very quickly. Anyone else? Yes, Elliot, go ahead, sir. Hebrews 10, 20. That's what Hebrews does that better than any other book. Shows the parallels between the things Jesus did compared to what was going on in the Old Testament system. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Okay, we'll stop there. Sunday, we're going to get to the resurrection. Let me just urge you to do this. As you study about the resurrection over the next few days, study it very carefully. Study it very carefully. You know, just it, a lot of people try to say there are contradictions when it comes to the resurrection story. There are none. 
It has to be. It's, it's, a, it's a hard study. I, I've been scratching my head all day. I, I think I figured it out. Y'all may correct me Sunday and say, boy, you didn't get nothing right. But we go, we're going to see because I think when you study it carefully, it makes a lot of sense, uh, these appearances. OK, so we'll deal with that Sunday. Thank you so much.